CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have all of you uh, with us for uh, this edition of Rewind. If you're listening to us in real time, we are getting right down to it uh, in the Georgia legislature. This is Tuesday, day uh, the crossover day, which is now what day? Anybody know the, the number on that day now? 20, 28. 28. Crossover day is uh, Thursday. And of course, that's the last day that a bill presumably can pass in one house and still go over to the other house in time to be voted on uh, in, and make it uh, for the session. Of course, Brian Robinson, Republican strategist, former communications director for former Governor Nathan Deal. It's a lot of farmers now. The whole Making notion, been, we've, right? t- we've joked about this, but the reality is a bill is never dead until it's really dead. And that means you may not make crossover day, but uh, you're always looking for uh, a, some way to attach your dead bill to something that's still moving. With the right friends in the General <laughs> Assembly, you are alive until the hammer comes down on sunny die day 40. That's Brian Robinson. We're glad to have you uh, always back, glad to be back here, with us. Across from you, if you're watching on Facebook Live, which you can do by going to the GPB news page on Facebook, is Kevin Riley. He's our Tuesday uh, uh, member of the AJC team, the editor of the AJC with us. Hi, Kevin. Good. And and the AJC uh, team members just upgrade as the week goes on and get me out of the way on Tuesday. <laughs> well, well, speaking of which, we have an upgrade sitting with us in Washington, D.C., your Washington correspondent, Tamar Hallerman. Hi, Tamar. Oh, shucks. That's nice of you to say. Hi, Bill. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Um and, to, and, you know, we haven't seen you for a long time, Theron Johnson. We are very glad to have you in the studio. Theron Johnson, a Democratic political strategist. Uh, he ran Barack Obama's re-election campaign in the South. Um, and uh, you are a regular on Sunday mornings on the Georgia Gang at 8.30 on Fox 5. I don't mind talking about that because... If people watch you at 830, they can turn right to GPB TV across the state and watch Political Rewind at 9 a.m. And I watch you guys. You guys are doing a wonderful job. Um, So whatever people do not uh, witness on our show, they definitely pick up on your show. So keep up the good work. It's great to have you here. Good to be here. Um, Let's do something. Uh, Tamara, I want to come to you uh, right away because um, we've been talking for weeks and weeks and weeks about the damage that Michael... Hurricane Michael caused in South Georgia. Now we've got this line of severe storms that moved through down there, caused more damage, and we are still waiting for a relief bill that will give protection to, uh, that will help the people who were hurt by that storm, people in California, people in Florida. It's still stalled. Let's just listen very briefly to Johnny Isaacson, Uh, pushing for a relief package on the floor of the Senate. On behalf of the Georgia people, say we're having a tough time. Our agricultural community is at the most difficult time it could possibly be. And we're going to ask the Senate to work with us to find an appropriation that will be sense to bring back those pecan and blueberry farmers in Georgia and Alabama and South Carolina and deal with the agricultural emergency we've had. It also... Tamar, what is going on? Why is this thing moving so slowly? Well, first, I, I want to make one thing clear kind of right out the gate. You know, okay. Hurricane Michael devastated, um, you know, the, the southeast back in October. Uh, FEMA, the, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, had money to, to help kind of with the immediate cleanup. Right. But what local lawmakers have been trying to do for several months now is to get extra assistance from the federal government to help some of these farmers who have been completely decimated by the storm, by other economic factors over the last few years. They were hoping to get some emergency money attached onto the border bill. Um, remember that, mm-hmm. that big bill to end the shutdown uh, that, that passed last month, and they'd been under the impression for months that that money was going to end up in there. Um, There was a 
fight over money for Puerto Rico, uh, having to do with food stamps for, for them, that, that the president and, and House Democrats really kind of fought over it. Mm-hmm. And, and in, the, uh, in the interest of avoiding another government shutdown, they took all emergency money out of the bill. And they said, OK, we're going to put a pin in this. We'll deal with this later. Um, that really blindsided Georgia lawmakers. They were really expecting that money to be in there. And, and ever since then, um, with the encouragement of Brian Kemp, they've really been pushing hard for the president and for the, the Senate especially to get moving on this bill. So last week, you had Johnny Isaacson and David Perdue in the Senate introduce a, a standalone bill, about $13.6 billion, to help um, Hurricane Michael victims. As you mentioned, California wildfires. There's money in there for Puerto Rico. They're interested in advancing this super quickly. But? <laughs> but nothing is, is ever so easy in the U.S. Senate. Um, you know, this is a, a chamber where things can move very quickly if you have 100 supporters, but getting 100 people on board for anything is, yeah. is a near Herculean task. So, so that's what they're trying to do right now. So let me, Brian, um, you, you would think, I mean, here's Georgia, presumably still a red state. It went for Trump, not by a lot of percentage points, but it did go for Trump. uh, And they want to hold on to the state. You would think that it would be in the interest of the president of the United States to want to give help to Georgia as quickly as possible. Yesterday, he talked about it a little bit after the tornadoes, the deadly tornadoes blew through Alabama. uh, And and he recognized how important the South is to him, but it's Mm -hmm. still not going. It's a little surprising to me. Oh, it really is, particularly for a leader who is so closely attuned to his base. And the if you look at the farm base of voters in this country, they are wildly pro-President Trump, not only in Georgia, but around the nation. And you would think he would love the visual of showing up with the giant oversized check and landing into, <laughs> into a, a pecan orchard in Bainbridge and, and doing that. And I think that's what I would recommend doing. And this is... One issue we're facing in the nation, and I'm sure Kevin and Theron will say it's because of global warming, and maybe it is, I don't know. Uh, We're seeing more and more of these type natural disasters. I think part of what we're running into is natural disaster fatigue, and that sounds absolutely awful, but I think at some juncture, the federal government has has gotten like, okay, we can't keep doing this every other week. And I would hate to see Georgia get left out of the cold because I've been to southwest Georgia in the last five months. And let me tell you, it is devastating to see what has happened. Uh, I have friends who are pecan farmers down there, and they have, it will take two to three generations to get back what they lost. And that, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, you know, I, I would say, Brian, I mean, we, we did a big story within the past month where we spent time down there. We've got four people down in Alabama and, and that part of Georgia uh, now reporting on, on what happened. The thing that I think that's frustrating to just an average American, average Georgian, is no one disagrees, right, tomorrow that this should be done. I mean, no one's standing right. up and arguing against it. And so in the rare case where we, we can build a, more than a consensus, the government still seems unable to move something forward. Well, exactly. this is one. And right now, right now, the argument is, is over um, kind of the details of individual programs between kind of there, there was a House Democrat version of this bill that moved during the shutdown. And now there's kind of a Senate Republican led version now from Isaacson and Purdue. And, and the holdup right now is that Democrats are disagreeing with the version that's going to move forward. Uh, the Democrat bill had a little bit more money for climate resiliency programs, um, some details related to the Puerto Rico money. And so they're, they're fighting over a comparatively really small slice of money. But in the meantime, that's inhibiting their ability to get this money quickly. Theron? And I think the one lucky thing, and Tamar, thank you so much for the, the great reporting on this, but Georgia is so fortunate because you couldn't have two better U.S. senators fighting for this bill than David Perdue and Johnny Isaacson. But Tamar just really highlighted something, Kevin, that I've been hearing from the Democratic side and that she's exactly right. There was a Democratic version of this bill introduced. And so, you know, elections have consequences. And so now with a Democratic controlled House, what you see Senator Isaacson doing is utilizing his goodwill and relationships with House Democrats, particularly in the Georgia delegation, to say, hey, let's find some middle ground here, because at the end of the day, it's about Georgians and it's about Georgians getting the relief funding that they need. And so I think that if you look at the tone and tenor of Senator Isaacson and also David Perdue, who's up for re-election, 
here uh, this year and next year. Um, you know, I think therein lies sort of the challenge that they've got to make sure that the American people feel that the federal government is working for them. I'm glad you mentioned Purdue coming up for re-election because I framed it in terms of the fact the president will be up in 2020 for re-election. He certainly will, but much closer to home, Theron. You Correct. are right. They could all it's, show up with the big checks if it, they played it right, right, Brian? I mean, they absolutely. need a communications guy like you used to be, apparently. <laughs> tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow, I, let me... I used to be. I still make a living doing this. You know? <laughs> tomorrow, before we move on, one quick note. Um, the port, the holdup on Puerto Rico, to what extent, I mean, we know that after the hurricane devastated Puerto Rico, uh, the president uh, went through some difficult times. He went down there. His visit down there wasn't particularly well received. He ended up in a fight with uh, officials in Puerto Rico, first just the mayor of San Juan, then with the governor of Puerto Rico. Is, uh, is any of the problem I, is any of the problem that we're dealing with in terms of the Puerto Rican angle on this tied up with all of the old politics of that, or is it a separate matter entirely? Well, just let me say, I, I, well, I think, let, wait. Let me just hear it tomorrow, and then I'll give you a yeah, chance. Yeah, don't disrupt our Washington correspondent. Yeah, I forget she's. Wait. I forget she's on. The Go ahead, Tamar. No, I think there there is some simmering distrust related to what happened last year, um, you know, with, with the president in Puerto Rico. There, there are some important differences in the way that their food stamp program is run compared to the, the continental U.S., but there is absolutely mistrust when it comes to that. And I think that Purdue and Isaacson were very much aware of that as they were about to release this bill. And they claim that they have a commitment from the president not to um, hold this up over Puerto Rico money. Okay, so I'm we'll sorry. The, the White House hasn't commented publicly, but... But, um, you know, that would be a big deal if that's true. Brian, you want to weigh in? I apologize, but I want to get to hear that from tomorrow. Absolutely. No, it was much more important than what I was going to say, which was uh, President Trump's role in handing out paper towels is greatly uh, underestimated in Puerto Rico. <laughs> you know, if a Democrat on the show had said that, we would have been getting tweets from Brian Robinson how disrespectful <laughs> we are. All right. Well, we're going to watch. And look. One of the reasons we start the show with this is because we know we have a lot of listeners who are across the rural sections of the state of Georgia, and we continue to uh, think about you, to worry for you, and, and so let's hope that this gets resolved as soon as it possibly can. Um, let's take a—we're we're, going to come back to a number of congressional issues a little bit uh, later in the show, and I know Tamar's going to fill us in on a number of them. But let's take a, a look just very quickly at some of the things going on in the legislature. Um, Theron, the, um, we, we all talked on this show a week or so ago that all of a sudden religious liberty was back in the legislature. Um, Marty Harbin introduced a, a religious liberty bill. We weren't sure it was ever going to reappear uh, this session but the Super Bowl ended, and suddenly all of the hot-button social issues were back in full force. And so we started talking about whether the religious liberty bill this year was going to get beyond uh, where it has. Since Nathan Deal, since uh, 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 Brian's old boss, vetoed it a few sessions ago. And out of nowhere, this bill disappeared the other day. Yeah, And it was supposed to be up for a public hearing in the Judiciary Committee, and at the last second, it didn't make the calendar that day. Uh, Harbin said, well, we ran out of time, and suddenly it appears that bill is dead for the session. What's going on? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, Bill, let's just go back right when the session um, was in its inception. Uh, Speaker David Ralston basically said publicly that he hoped that the whole conversation around RIFA was not going to be discussed this upcoming session. And so I've said many times about the speaker that he is the very civil, balanced uh, conscience of this legislature. You know, clearly he's a conservative Republican, but he has received a lot of heat by trying to work in a civil manner um, to move the state forward. And so, boom, here comes this, you know, reappearance of Riff. And I was at the Capitol, Bill, and I can tell you, not only— did you see state senators and state reps sort of talking amongst themselves saying, oh, my God, here we go again. But even the lobbyist community, we were like, oh, wow, like this is now what we thought we were going to see once the Super Bowl is over. But big, big applause to all the legislators coming together in whatever way, form or fashion they did it to make sure that this divisive, unnecessary, discriminatory religious liberty bill did not come to the forefront where it didn't cost the state 
the economic prosperity that we're aiming for. Kevin? Well, you know, I think obviously Theron's right. I mean, those of us who have know David Ralston or watch him in action uh, know that he has found ways to keep this sort of thing from happening. And sometimes it's it's a, you know, you, you see people maneuvering the process in other ways. But Brian, I mean, uh, there is no question that Governor Deal, I mean, I would argue for what, six of his eight years as governor, found a way to keep this from happening. And it wasn't until, you know, near the end where he literally had to veto bills. But I mean, you think Governor Kemp, or I mean, based on your experience working for Governor Deal, can kind of send the right message or keep something like this from happening? And he seems to already have done it. If not him, Jeff Duncan, the yeah, lieutenant governor. I mean, governor. how does it really work? I mean, over there from the governor's office. Well, when I want to give Governor Kemp credit, and I don't know if he played any particular role in this, but you can look at their strategy and how they have governed, and they are working very hard at changing the image that was formed during the primary in last year's election, where he ran as a very conservative uh, guy, heavy on the trucks and the guns, et cetera. And you are seeing somebody who is adjusting to the reality of a state that is now 50-50 and that he's got to build a bigger tent in the GOP. And we're not going to do that by focusing on issues where we lose a lot of people in the middle. And this is one of them. So it would not surprise me if Jeff Duncan or Brian Kemp, both of which have to run statewide, said, look, this is going to really hurt us in four years if we have months of negative national headlines about Georgia being an unwelcoming place for business, Georgia being an unwelcoming place for events like the Super Bowl, et cetera. So if they are behind it, kudos to them, because it shows they are strategically thinking about how we win the next time. You know, Tamar, it's interesting. Uh, here's what Brian Kemp said, and p- people uh, who listen to the show will will certainly remember we've talked about this. Brian Kemp said on the campaign trail when asked about whether he'd support religious liberty or not, he said, I will support a bill that mirrors the 1993 RIFRA passed by the Clinton administration, we, we should point out. Now, Tamar, what was interesting about that 93 legislation is that it was really put in place initially to protect the use of peyote by uh, Indian tribes in religious uh, rituals so that the the laws of the states would not, in fact, uh, 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 trigger um, uh, criminal activity against these things. And, And so Kemp said, you know, I'll go for a version of what they passed back then. This current bill doesn't quite mirror that, but it still feels as if Kemp... In fact, if you had a hand in this, or certainly Jeff Duncan in the Senate, uh, just recognize this isn't good for the state right now. That's interesting. I didn't know that that they yeah. got peyote. Well, you in were the so young back yeah. then. You weren't it even seems a, like such a you quaint know, what problem. What do you remember you know, about '93? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know, you're you're right. This version that has emerged in the legislature over the last uh, few weeks was seen as kind of an expansion beyond the the 1993 federal bill. So that gave uh, that gave Kemp cover, or, or you know, the the leaders cover to to reject it, while also still saying they they're supportive of the overall concept. So is this time to celebrate, Theron? No. I mean, I think that, again— <laughs> It will never go away. Is that, that it, it, it will never go away. And, and listen, you know, to be fair, um, I've done my best to try to listen to some of my friends on the other side. Uh, I don't have many of them lately, but on the other side, um, who really feel strongly about this issue. And I just keep coming back to at a time where we're a country that's founded on religious freedom— where we clearly have a federal law in place. And they have made some very compelling arguments about how this could go one and two steps further. But again, I just don't think that it's going to ever go away as long as we have certain members of the legislature that feel very deeply and passionate about this issue. Let me, let me bring up something that I don't think we ever discuss. And, and part of this because this is so sensitive. But when you talk about religious exemption laws, we imagine laws that protect conservative Christians. I mean, that's that's what comes to mind, right? Uh, people having baptisms on a you know public high school football field, et cetera. That's what we imagine. One thing that I wonder is what are the unintended consequences in an ever more diversifying America, where people's religious practices aren't as uh, you know 
monolithic as they were 50 years ago in the country. We were all basically Christians, a handful of Jewish people, you know, maybe a handful of Buddhists. But now there it's are much, Muslims in the country. Not, yeah. I said 50, 60, but now, <laughs> now there are a ton of different religions here. And I wonder if there are some practices that we as a society would just find repugnant, that we would be see as criminal and bad for women or for children. Yeah, and and yeah, does this impact our ability to yeah, enforce those laws if they, if they use the cloak of religiosity? Yeah, but Kevin, Kevin, Brian, it's an interesting thought to follow. But Kevin, the sudden preponderance of religious liberty bills followed, to some extent, the Supreme Court ruling in favor of gay marriage, and, and, and despite Brian's feeling that a lot of the, this is, is about protecting the religious practices of certain groups of people, uh, a lot of it had to do with things like our gay baker friend in Denver who did not want to make a cake right. well, for I, a gay wedding. I think that's always been there, and, and uh, you know, Brian used the word sensitive to talk about, and I, I think he has a good point in that these issues— are complicated and 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 worthy of discussion, but this thing's always kind of had that stain of it's not really about what we say it's about and what we're calling it. It's not really what we mean. And and I think it's been. Um, I once wrote a column. You know, uh, I'm sure Brian remembers this, uh, congratulating Nathan Deal on the he took a very difficult and principled stance when he vetoed that bill. His and veto it, it speech. Helped. His veto speech on religious liberty bill. Wouldn't you agree, Theron? Uh, one of his finest moments. Yeah, and, and, and Kevin, listen, Brian not only remembers it. I mean, I'm sure he has it framed in his basement. Uh, <laughs> I don't know who read it to him, but I heard he liked it. <laughs> yeah, and trust me, you would have known that that Brian Robinson if he uh, did, didn't like it. Um, but no, listen, one of the reasons we got here, Kevin just hit on something. It was not only the the bill when it was first written, but it was also the messengers of the bill. I mean, not to harp on this guy, but former state senator Josh McCune yeah. and others were known at that time, and I think somewhat now, as being very, very conservative mm -hmm. Republicans, right? And so I think if Brian and others probably can admit, if they can go back and do it all over again, they would have probably sought to have maybe a different message. Different messenger, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. listen, my party, when we saw two or three members that were pushing this, we immediately went into responsive sort of attack mode to push back on this. And then it really kind of got out of hand um, where you really start talking about the gay rights issue and basically putting um, language in the bill that blatantly discriminated on some of my brothers and sisters in the gay and lesbian community. But again, Governor Deal, that's why he's so uh, wonderful for our state. And he stood up in a very, very tough time to veto this bill, not once, but twice. Well, it wasn't that tough. He didn't or, have to go. He didn't have to run for election again. Right? <laughs> that's well, true. That, that was a big difference. And I, I will tell you, uh, as someone who worked in his shadow for a long time, it is it, it, history. You look back now and it's like it just seems inevitable that he was going to veto that bill. I can tell you firsthand it was not. Uh, he struggled with it. I mean, this is a Southern Baptist. He is a teetotaler. He is a man of of religion and is and, and does share many of the concerns of the faith community about, uh, you know, government intrusion into religious uh, practice. So it was not a done deal. Until uh, the very last moment. Right. I got to get to a break. But before I do, you know, I try to uh, keep track of the great conversations that many of you have on Facebook Live as you watch the show on Facebook. Phil Lunny uh, put in a, just uh, posted a, a message. He said, I was in the committee room and the folks in the room who waited an hour and a half may have played a role. So apparently I wasn't at any of the committee, that public hearing, but apparently there was quite a contingent there, according to Phil. Phil, by the way, points out something else that we learned just before we went on the air, and it may be news to all of you. Um, this, the bill that would give direct <laughs> scholarship payments yeah. to families for private school, as opposed to putting it in that tax, that kitty, that tax credit kitty that could be drawn upon, that's gone down in defeat too. Theron, you were aware of that? Yeah, uh, Senate Bill 173. Yeah. This is the uh, school vouchers bill that uh, was many viewed by many as sort of a Governor Kemp uh, bill. Um, you know, you had uh, my good friend, Senator Brian Strickland, I think, being the second signer on this. And so this was a, um, you know, maybe a huge win for the people who are against vouchers, majority Democrats. But um, this was something that a lot of people were watching closely. And, it is, and it's blowing up at the Capitol right now. I mean, this oh, is something is. that a lot of folks yeah, are talking about. Brian, one of the reasons that it was uh, particularly uh, focused on by some 
was this was a direct payment. We've never had that in this state before, where as a, as a family, I could get a check directly to me uh, giving me scholarship money for my child. And although to some extent it's symbolic more than it is, uh, you know, concrete because there there still is what a hundred plus million dollar fund right. for people it it just suddenly felt to opponents of it as as something that was really had to be uh, put down as fast as possible this is another recurring issue you know they they've through the years they've increased the level of that tax credit that goes to uh, to families it just goes to schools to pay for scholarships for private school students and this is one of those issues that is not it's partisan in the sense that the only people for these are Republicans, but not all Republicans are for it. Yeah. And so these issues on, on school choice, on vouchers or tax credits are always contentious. I've talked to several rural Republicans who are in districts that Donald Trump carried by 80 percent or more. And they've said to me, 95 plus percent of my constituents are in public schools. Why in the world would I care about this? All right. Um, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. We have an awful lot more to talk about. Uh, we got Brian Robinson and Theron Johnson together again in the GPB Political Rewind studio. Kevin Riley and in Washington, Tamar Hallerman. We'll be right back after these messages. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. The 5G Internet is on the way. Imagine uh, downloading HD movies in a minute rather than half an hour. And more. 5G could allow self-driving cars to talk to each other in real time. Doctors could start examining patients while they're still in the ambulance. That plus the latest on the president's national emergency declaration and the tornadoes in Alabama. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, Tomorrow, let me, uh, you know, we're going to kind of go back and forth. We got big issues in Washington and here in Georgia uh, today. Um, Let's uh, talk uh, for a few minutes at least uh, tomorrow about exactly what's happening over there in the U.S. Senate on the uh, pending vote on uh, President Trump's emergency declaration. Uh, it, 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 It appears fairly certain, in fact, Mitch McConnell has said it himself, that um, the Senate has enough votes to uh, nullify President Trump's declaration of an emergency. Where do our Georgia senators stand on this? Do we know yet? Uh, yes and no. So, so David Perdue has already said that he will vote to disapprove. Or no, no, no. Sorry, to um, to he will vote against the resolution of disapproval. So he will vote with the president. Um, he went and visited the the southwest border a few weeks ago, and he said he saw a real emergency down there. He he talked a lot about the the flow of drugs that have been coming across the border. He says to him that's as big of an emergency as anything. So he's going to be voting with the White House on that. Johnny Isaacson has not said how. He'll vote, and he's um, he's one of the senators being closely watched to see um, how he'll come down on this. You know, on the one hand, he's a real party man; he wants to do what what leadership expects of him. But at the same time, he's expressed a lot of concerns about executive overreach and, and having any one person with, with all of this unchecked power. Um, not only that, we still don't know where that money is going to come from. The, the money Trump is going to use to pay for the border wall that could come from military projects in Georgia. Um, so he's he's really kept his opinion close to the vest for now, and we might not know until closer to next week how he'll come down. Yeah, they still have some time before they have to take up this resolution, which did, of course, pass uh, in the democratically controlled House. But here's what's interesting about this, Kevin. Um, th- you know, Tamar talks about Johnny Isaacson wanting to support his party and his president. But given that we are now being told that the president's put very—and the White House are— doing very little to try to convince senators to vote with them, this is becoming more and more like feeling like a free vote for Republicans, especially if you already know there are enough Republicans in the Senate to vote it down. It seems that in some ways, 
Isaacson isn't under the kind of pressure that he could be if it were if he were the if he were the John McCain of this vote. Right, right. Well, because I read tomorrow's story in our paper on Sunday about how Isaacson usually plays these things, I'm not at all surprised, right, tomorrow, that he isn't revealing what he's going to do just yet, because then he won't till he has to. But um, in the end, right? I mean, even if the Senate. The, he does, the president doesn't get his way in the Senate. He vetoes the well, bill, and they can't it. override it. So, I mean, we kind of end up in the same place, don't we? And I think what was so interesting, and I also read your story tomorrow, so great job on that, is that, you know, Senator Isaacson's approach to how he's been able to be an effective senator in D.C. for so long is something that I'm sure that is really driving him crazy right now because at least you knew you had a person in the White House that you knew their intentions, right? You knew that they were pretty much uh, for or against a particular um, piece of legislation. And then also now with the, the president basically threatening a veto, it's just really tough for Senator Isaacson to really find some, you know, logical common ground to try to move forward an argument or a conversation that makes sense for the American people. And so I think that, you know, he's extremely frustrated but I think that he's doing the best that he can to try to talk to Republicans who are listening to try to have some common ground. Yeah, it feels, Brian, though, that uh, Republicans in the Senate have some cover on this issue if you take the argument that if you go along with the president, if the president wins this argument on being able to declare national emergency over, forget about all of the talking points in which Republicans have said, well, other presidents have used their national emergency powers. Yes, but never to override a fiscal decision by the Congress. And of course, so the question now is, and some Republicans can embrace it, is if we give President Trump his way on this, what happens when a Democratic president comes in and wants to declare national emergencies that are not in our interests as Republicans? Well, you're hearing just that argument from people who have been staunch supporters of President Trump. You're hearing that from Ted Cruz. You're hearing that from Rand Paul of Kentucky, people who have been with him on some of those tough issues. Now, I'd say it, it does concern me as well as a Republican and as somebody who actually agrees with the president strongly on the need for tighter border security. And I'm all for building the wall. I, I'm I still am baffled that during the two years where we had complete control of Congress and the White House, we didn't get it done. And that, that is my great frustration. And, and I, I get the need to that that this is important to our base and is going to drive uh good politics for him going into the the presidential election, but it greatly disappoints me that we didn't get this done when we had the votes. All right. I mean, Rand Paul coming out saying that he was going to vote against the president, to me, that was sort of the nail in the coffin. I mean, because he was one of the few people that we were sort of as Democrats looking to see what he was going to do. But I agree with Brian. Listen, not on building a wall, I'll be very clear. I, I'm totally against the <laughs> yeah, building of the wall. You to the I'm specify that. But it, it shows you this president's inability to, to govern and really he's got some campaign promises that he hasn't really answered. I mean, Bill, you've heard me say the last time I was on the show, I'm still waiting on this infrastructure bill. Yeah. I mean, when I'm in Buckhead and I see some of my neighbors, actually, we can't go up and down a road now because of sinkhole that basically is just collapsed in the middle of our neighborhood. And you look at all of the infrastructure challenges across the country um, where people are trying to expand transit and do other things. I mean, to me, that's another failed campaign promise from this president. All right. Um, again, as, as we've said, we still have a ways to go before the Senate has to take a vote. Um, boy, I'd like to take bets on what Isaacson will do here. Anybody want to join me in that? Well, I tell you, I mean, <laughs> Isaacson is, has shown that when he is pushed to a certain level, yeah. he is more than willing to take to the floor and let the president know what he thinks. Yeah. And he certainly did it um, when there was what he saw as disrespect to Senator McCain. Yep. He did it again when the shutdown had gone on for too long and he and he was fired up by TSA workers coming up to him at Hartsfield Jackson complaining. Yeah. And um, so you never know. I mean, the guy is... Uh, yeah, at this stage of his career, he's got the freedom to kind of do what he wants. Tomorrow, I'd ask you to vote, but your boss is sitting right here. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm not going to predict how he would vote, but, uh, you know, a, a point that I made in my story on Sunday is, and, and one worth noting here is that Isaacson for other Republican presidents, um, you know, the Bushes, there was a real loyalty there. Even if he wouldn't have agreed with, with the Bushes on every single thing, he felt really compelled to stand up for them and hold his nose even on issues where they weren't in 100 percent agreement. Um, Trump has made him more of a free agent, yeah. not like he's been an anti-Trumper in any way, but I feel he he feels like he has more room to kind of call brawls and strikes as they come. So I think he's really a person to watch going into next week. All right. We'll see how that turns out. Kevin, did you want to weigh in? No, I mean, all this talk of gambling, though, I guess we better start talking about Georgia and this we're, whole casino We're going to go issue. there. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get you're there. just teasing us. You will get there. But before we do, there's another big issue that appears, Theron, to be heading nowhere this session. Before the session... Many people who are involved in covering politics, who are involved as consultants and the like, said that one of the biggest issues we were going to deal with this year was certificate of need and what we ought to do about certificates of need. Now, I mean, that gets to be a complicated subject, but in its simplest form, and you all correct me if I'm wrong, it's it's simply that the state has uh, regulations that um, govern whether a hospital can add certain expensive equipment, MRI machines, that sort of thing, whether they can build additional facilities. The, The effort is to regulate these things. If I got it basically right, uh, so you sort of have a control over how healthcare is distributed across our state. Is that fair enough? I, I think that's good. And Brian, I'm sure, can definitely expand on your description. But, um, you know, I go back to what I've said previously. I had a chance to uh, listen to Minority Leader Bob Trammell in the State House. And one of the things that he did right away is that he said, if we're going to have a conversation about certificate of needs, we've got to have a really good conversation about Medicaid expansion. Right. And so what I want to commend the governor and others is that there is a willingness there to expand Medicaid through a waiver program. I mean, that was the one thing that we saw that got covered last week. But I wouldn't give up on it yet, Bill. You know, there's a lot of of my lobbyist friends uh, who are at the Capitol uh, every day. I won't give them any free publicity on this show, but (laughs) I'll just say they're good uh, Georgians that still feel that there's an opportunity here to really Pat, you know, p- p- promote this conversation around certificate of needs because I truly believe as a Georgian that any conversations about expanding health care to all Georgians, um, whether it's through Medicaid expansions or certificate of needs, and it's done fairly and it's making sure that it's following the state law or improving the current law, I'm all for it. So I, I wouldn't give up on it yet, but it's definitely something that a lot of folks are waiting to see. So, Brian, let's explain why it has some practical impact on people who listen. It, it, it's a kind of, again, it's, it's sort of a convoluted issue, but it does have an impact. So right now, uh, the nonprofit hospital organizations in the state for the most part, are opposing the changing of these regulations because Mm -hmm. they fear that um, a cancer treatment center of America, which is the big private facility that comes into play here, if they're allowed to just expand at will, they could really have a devastating impact on what the nonprofit hospitals, a Grady Hospital, for instance, or others try to accomplish. Fair enough? Yeah, and one thing to remember is many of these nonprofit hospitals are owned by us, by the local taxpayers. Many are county hospital authorities that own these these operations. And so the argument that you hear for why we need to change it is we need the free market. We need choice. We're going to drive down prices. Actually, in healthcare, more choice, more investment leads to higher prices. It's sort of a counterintuitive thing. It's a different market than others. There is no free market in healthcare. Because hospitals are required by law to treat anybody who comes through the door. And so one-third of them don't pay anything at all. One-third of them are on Medicaid or other government insurance that doesn't cover the full cost of care. And then the other third are paying insured patients. And so what repealing CON would do would be allow a few independent operators to take that 30% of paying customers away. And so all that would be, you know, and they're only going to offer profitable procedures, and they're only going to offer uh, services to people who can pay. Uh, they have no obligation to do charity care, no obligation to take Medicaid. So it's not competition. It's not the free market. And so what ends up happening is that if you, if hospitals lose their profitable revenue sources, 
then they can't offer the stuff we all need that's not profitable. Right, let's Trauma uh, care, ne- uh, neonatal units, emergency rooms, et cetera. We lose all that. Let's say you do have a dog. You're working on this issue, yes, right? Yes. So we, we do want to make that clear. Yes, it's, I'm that's not fine. objective. Yeah. That's, you, no problem with that. <laughs> we just want to make sure people are aware of it. Let's listen to a commercial that the opponents of certificate of need have now got out there. No matter the time, no matter the emergency, local hospitals are always there, fixing the problem so you can go on with your life. Our community hospitals take all patients, whether they can pay or not. And protections in Georgia law help lower prices, produce better outcomes, and guarantee access, ensuring you continue to get the very best care right in your own community. Tell your legislator, keep health care local. Support our community hospitals. Learn more at SaveGeorgiaHealthCare.com. Brian Robinson says he has some familiarity with that commercial. Yeah, yeah, for that time or two, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, so here's, we're going to leave it at this this for now because it's not quite dead, but Theron believes that it's still possible this will move forward. Here's why it's worth keeping your eye on in the days ahead. It, there could be a trade-off here, and that's what was talked about from the very beginning of the session. If you expand Medicaid, if the proponents of expanding Medicaid get something that they're looking for, and Theron pointed out Brian Kemp may be moving toward helping them, then perhaps in exchange they will accept a change in the certificate of need uh, l- rules. Is that fair enough? Theron? Yeah. Again, I, I still think that with that conversation, again, I, again, I want to commend the governor for, for doing what I believe is, is right. I mean, listen, Stacey Abrams built her whole campaign on expansion of Medicaid, right? So to move to a waiver based system, and it looks like it's getting some good support in the legislature, don't give up, you know, crossover day is Thursday at midnight. And, um, you know, also we know on day 40, you can tack on these things on a bill, in the last hours, and so I wouldn't say it's over yet. Okay, yeah. let's try the waiver. Is that what? Yeah, because um, I commend the governor too for showing a lot of leadership. Um, you know, Theron and I do a lot of public events together, and he can vouch for the fact that I have been saying for months that the governor needs to get Tom Price, the former HHS secretary and a Georgian, to do the waiver. And guess what? That's exactly what they're doing. We have the most highly qualified expert doing a conservative, sustainable plan that expands access to health care in Georgia. It's something Republicans can campaign on in two years. All right. I I support Congressman Price helping out. I just don't want him in any private jets. All right. All right. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and we'll come back with more. On the next Fresh Air, Alex Kotlowitz, who followed the lives of two boys in a Chicago housing project for his 1991 book, There Are No Children Here. In his new book, An American Summer, he writes about how the constant threat of murder and gun violence affects people in Chicago's poorest and most segregated neighborhoods. He compares what children there experience to the trauma of war vets. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Touchdown, John Nelson here from GPB Sports, reminding you that in Georgia, the four seasons are not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It is football, spring football, Cruton, and National Signing Day. On the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, we'll tell you the stories on and off the field. Subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Okay, I've got two more issues, two more issues I really want to get to before the show is over. So, panel, let's hope to get them both in. I want to first start with Tamar. Tamar, Gerald Nadler's uh, Judiciary Committee in the House, Democratic-controlled House, has now issued uh, uh, paperwork saying they want documents from like 80 different individuals, agencies, whatever. They're beginning their comprehensive investigation of President Trump's uh business in the White House, his personal businesses. Um, and the, the real key question here is uh, that I think everybody's talking about is, uh, is this political overreach on the part of the Democrats? Are they going to end up getting blowback, helping the president claim that there's a witch hunt out there, which, of course, he's already doing? Is this a necessary step because there's been no congressional oversight with an all-Republican House and Senate? I mean, how is this all playing out in Washington this morning? 
Sure. I mean, you have the Republicans on the committee being led by Georgia's Doug Collins, who are saying yeah. this is exactly, you know, Democrats overreaching and kind of grasping at straws because the Senate Intelligence Committee hasn't found evidence of collusion with Russia. Um, and, and they do, you know, they are salivating about this idea that, that maybe Democrats will overstep and that could help Republicans and Donald Trump in the 2020 elections. Then you have Democrats who are saying, look, we're doing what the Republican House refused to do for the first two years of the Trump presidency, looking at um, the Trump, you know, looking at his business dealings, um, the, the Russia, uh, you know, the famous Trump Tower Russia meeting that included Don Jr., um, you know, talking about the firing of James Comey, talking about possible emoluments from foreign governments. So they see it as them doing their due diligence. They're also seeing it as a potential insurance policy in case, um, you know, the, the Mueller report doesn't have a big smoking gun in it as well. So Kevin, uh, one of the, I'm sorry, Tamar. Kevin, one of the reasons we're particularly interested in, in Georgia is why while back, when Doug Collins became the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, we said on this show, there he is. He is now positioned to be Trump's watchdog in uh, the Congress. And that's exactly what he has now become. Uh, he's shown us that on a number of occasions already, particularly in the Michael Cohen hearings. And he's certainly going to play a big role as the Judiciary Committee begins investigating. Well, yeah, I think we can expect to see him a lot on uh, cable television news shows. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that when all one of the things we have to consider is that uh, while these investigations could be overreach and all these things could happen, this presidency has created an awful lot of stuff. And in a normal presidency, we wouldn't be hesitating at all to investigate any one of these things. It's just that it's so much at once that it seems like uh, uh, you know, it should be debated. But I mean, think about this for a second. I mean, if if Barack Obama had done some of these things, would the Republicans have hesitated? Does anyone remember the Benghazi investigation? Well, let's go back further. Let's <laughs> let's say that the Whitewater investigation in Congress generated the requests for documentation about Whitewater about by by a multitude of numbers eclipse what's being asked for by this Democratic Congress. Republicans wanted a lot more when they went after Bill and Hillary Clinton on Whitewater. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, Kevin, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, if this had been President Obama, I mean, there would have been many, many bills introduced in an in in effort to try to impeach him by now. I mean, it would have happened in his in his first year. But the thing that I think that is so interesting to me about this is that this is the oversight that is needed with this president. Listen, a lot of people are saying that they feel like the Mueller report may not have the quote unquote smoking gun, but it is their responsibilities as members of Congress to make sure that they put, put forth the necessary oversight to fully investigate this. And this is my thing. Since we've seen Cohen, who was his personal attorney, who basically said that he was a racist and a, and a, and a, a manipulator and calling him a con man and all these different things, we know that the president basically bullet his way in trying to get his son-in-law, you know, top tier security clearance. And we also know that this president is on the record for basically trying to influence the Department of Justice to block the AT&T and Town Warner deal. And so to your point, as the, the, the Congressional Oversight Committee and other committees try to investigate one thing, we see new things coming out what this president has allegedly done. And so I think this investigation needs to be ongoing, needs to be thorough, and American people deserve we, to make sure we, that he's and fully going to get. We'll have plenty of time to talk about it, especially Doug Collins' role as we move forward. But I do, I promise, two issues. So, Brian, I'm going to give you the first crack at the next one. The MARTA vote is ongoing, the early voting in Gwinnett. You guys are involved in, in helping, trying to get that across the finish line. Right now, the early voting uh, data doesn't look good for the pro-Gwinnett uh, uh, Marta side. You've got a uh, preponderance of white voters and older uh, voters. Uh, but now you've picked up some key endorsements. Charlotte Nash, who was on the show a week ago, the only Republican in the county who was supporting the measure. Now you've got Danny Porter, the Republican DA up there. You've got Sheriff, I think. Butch uh, Conway. Butch yeah. Conway. So where's this headed? Well, there's always been a lot of business and Republican support there uh, in the county for this because the people who know the most about what the county needs and the challenges they face know that transit beats traffic is uh, the new slogan of the campaign. And so you're seeing Governor Deal, who signed the legislation last year that allowed this referendum to move forward, come out in support of it as well. So you're seeing more and more Republicans stamp up and take a leadership role here. 
But I want to take a step back, and I, I said this to Kevin's paper yesterday. I don't know if it's in there yet or not, but the fact is what we're seeing as far as turnout and early voting right now really closely mirrors what we saw, the patterns we saw in the 2018 general election. And we all believe, whether you're pro-transit vote or anti-transit vote, that if it had been on the ballot in November, it would have passed overwhelmingly. You know, you saw Stacey Abrams win the county by a very wide margin uh, last year. And so if the pattern holds as it did in 2018, I think you're going to see the electorate and the demographics of the electorate change dramatically. But I don't want to give the impression that this is a partisan issue. Uh, again, Republicans and business people uh, do support this. There, You know, most Republicans uh, are probably less supportive than, than than most Democrats, but this is not a partisan issue. This is a low-tax way to have a long-term solution, and Gwinnett County needs to connect to the region. Sixty percent of people in Gwinnett live, uh, I mean, work outside of the county. Theron, it is astonishing how many leaders across Metro Atlanta have said they are waiting for the outcome of this vote. It's crucial to how transit develops across metro Atlanta. Absolutely. I mean, that's the reason why Brian and I, Democrat and Republican, are working together on this, because even though we represent different parties, we both support transit. And so I would just say that this vote is so important, not only for our region's um, prosperity, but also to continue to be a leading state to do business. Because one of the things that Governor Deal talked about, and, and our good friend Lori Geary says this all the time, it was two questions that now Governor and former Governor Deal and now Governor Kemp and Mayor Bottoms are asked about when they're out recruiting businesses to Georgia. Number one, how quickly can my employees and myself get to and from the airport? And are you near a MARTA station or do you have access to robust transit? And so if we just take out sort of the uh, fears and some of the um, prejudice uh, approaches to this that existed back in the 70s and the 90s. If we really just take that out of it and just look at it from a pragmatic standpoint, to me, Bill, it just makes sense. You know, Kevin, that's interesting. We're virtually out of time. I'll give you a last shot at this. Um, your paper published a really important article about what happened to the Gwinnett Martyr referendum in 1990 and did talk to people who made it clear in those days it was about fear of crime, it was fear about race. Um, it's very difficult to find anyone who can come forward right now as a critic of this vote who has factual information that will counter the pro-arguments in the sense that the money does not get turned over to MARTA. It goes to Gwinnett County. Um, there are all sorts of misimpressions here, and the critics uh, have not been particularly able to put together an argument. So it's all kind of playing out underground, the opponents to this thing. Right. And and I think that unlike uh, 70s and 90s, where critics might have been less guarded in, in their reasons um, and less concerned about the fallout from those reasons, it's tougher to do that today. So that criticism is going to remain underground. But also, let's remember, I mean, now we've got getting close to, what, 50 years of working on this. So third time third or fourth time to really try when you get right down to it. Mm -hmm. So you got to figure the advocates, the two of them sitting here with us, have a lot of things figured out and have tried to block all, all right. the exits. I got interrupted. We are completely out of time for today's show. Kevin Riley, Theron Johnson, Brian Robinson. It really is great to have you two, Theron it's and Brian, back. Uh, back in the studio. Play Tamara to Hallerman, we appreciate your work up there in Washington. You're doing that job so we don't have to. Thank you for being on the show today as well. That's it for for us today. We're back tomorrow at 2. It's our final show before crossover day, so I guarantee you we'll be talking a lot tomorrow about what appears on the verge of living or dying in the 2019 session of the General Assembly. See you tomorrow at 2.